Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 131. And today I am speaking with Beth Browning. Beth is a biologist. She is a wife. She is a mom of two. She's a runner. And in fact, she was training for the Chicago Marathon when she felt a lump under her arm back in June of 2021. She quickly sought medical attention. And because of the location of the mass, initially she was suspected to have breast cancer. But a biopsy revealed that she in fact had stage four ovarian cancer. And less than a month from the time that she felt that original lump, she was getting her first cycle of chemotherapy. On today's episode, Beth talks about her treatment since that time, which has included chemotherapy, surgery, more chemotherapy, and now maintenance treatment with Avastin and Linparza, which is a PARP inhibitor. She talks about her running and she'll share whether or not she made it to the start line of the Chicago Marathon. She talks about how she's handled the side effects of the medications because they definitely can be challenging. And we talk a lot about what it's been like living with a stage four diagnosis and what that has meant in terms of her mental health and how she's had to reconcile that with this some pressure that sometimes comes up of feeling like she has to quote, live her best life. Beth shares her concerns for her daughters. And she also opens up about the fact that her mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer shortly after Beth was. There is a lot on this episode, but I want to leave you with this. We end the conversation on a positive note because while for years, there were not many advances in ovarian cancer, Things are changing, and we have seen some really incredible developments in the last decade, and I am hopeful and optimistic that more will continue to come. I hope you enjoy this episode, and with that, it is my honor to welcome Beth Browning to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Beth, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. This is really an honor. Uh, you know, I, I'm really excited to talk to you and hear about your experiences with ovarian cancer, both during active treatment and kind of what life looks like now. Why don't we start by just you giving us an introduction about who you are and what you do? Um, well, I'm Beth Browning, and um, I am a mom. I have two girls. I'm a biologist at a small biotech company. Um, I'm, I've been a runner, um, a triathlete. I do, you know, I like to stay active, um, do lots of things like that. For me, it's very social. And when were you diagnosed and how did, how did your diagnosis come to be? Because I think one of the things we hear a lot about ovarian cancer, as you know, is, you know, there are no good screening tests and people don't present with symptoms until it is more advanced disease. So what was your diagnosis like? So my diagnosis was um, completely surprising. Um, I had no symptoms. You know, I was training for the Chicago Marathon. I was 
um, looking to, you know, get even faster. And it was uh, June of 2021. And I was uh, in the shower, I was shaving, and I felt a lump under my arm and um, thought, well, that's kind of weird. And felt on the other arm and didn't feel it and really was just like, Oof, that's probably something. And my normal inclination would be to just sort of like mm, avoid it and not worry about it. But I went downstairs, I said something to my husband, like, I found a lump under my arm. I'm going to call my doctor. Now, my actual doctor had retired in 2020. So I, she had been my doctor for 30 years. Uh, I didn't ever get to say goodbye. That was very sad. Um, and um, so I called there at Mass General and I called them and they said they could see me that day. So this was June 18th. I went in. Um, you know, she did an exam and, um, you know, looked at my chart and saw I hadn't had a mammogram in quite a while and, um, you know, gave me some side eye for that, <laughs> then uh, set me up. So that was the Friday. I had a mammogram set up for the following Wednesday, also at Mass General at the main campus. Um, and I went in and um, I had a mammogram. They moved me into the next room. I had an ultrasound. They made me wait a few minutes and then they took me in and they did a biopsy. So it was like, boom, 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 just kind of got it all done. And um, then I waited. I waited for the biopsy results to come back. And so they have um, patient gateway. It's the epic, you know, so you know, I kept checking and um, it was the following Monday. I saw the cytology results were back and it said, <clears throat> you know, malignant cells. So I knew there was cancer. They were good. They called me, um, you know, they followed up. They set me up with the breast um, team at Mass General. I had an appointment for the following Wednesday, which was going to be like, you know, July 7th-ish. So that was the Monday. And then I kept kind of waiting for the actual pathology to come back. Um, you know, I because I work in biotech, I know I, I just, I kind of knew there was going to be another set of data. And so kept looking, kept looking. <clears throat> and then finally on the Friday night, um, I saw that the pathology came back and it said um, that it, it, you know, based on the markers they tested for, it wasn't breast, it wasn't lymph, and it was likely gynecologic in origin. So it was already stage four, which I knew. Um, and then um, the primary care physician called me on the Saturday and you know, basically said that this is what is going on. And so they were, I mean, Matt General was great. They um, actually canceled all my breast appointments <laughs> and, and made an appointment um, essentially the same day I was going to have the original appointment with um, a gynecologic oncologist. And so I got in, they, um, she was great. I really like her. Um, they set me up with a PET scan, a CT scan, um, and I was having my first round of chemo on July 16th. So it was less than a month that everything was kind of done. Now, as a biologist, right, you have a lot of background, you have a lot of knowledge. You know, it's, I'm always curious about, you know, finding out these results on portals. Right. Because it is a federal law, it's a mandate, so there's no way around it. And there's also no great way for someone to call you at, you know, nine o'clock at night when right. the pathologist signs it out. So I think this is something that we all struggle with because 
you know, did, in this case, did you feel like your knowledge here was helpful or was it, oh my gosh, I know too much. I know this is stage four and I'm terrified. So I think in some ways it was helpful, but be, I think because I I sort of knew what it meant. It wasn't, um, I, you know, it's possible, you know, if somebody that doesn't have sort of the background in oncology, drug discovery, um, you know, reading sort of those reports, you know, it might, the words might seem like you don't understand what it means. So I like I, I felt like it was helpful that way. It also was a little bit um, like, oh yeah, I know this is stage four, this is not good. Um, you know, that said though, working in the industry, I know that there are, you know, so many companies that are, you know, maybe it's not necessarily strictly ovarian cancer that they're, you know, trying to target, but, you know, there's so much um, research going on right now. There's so many drugs, like this is never a great time to have cancer, but I'm so glad it's now and not 10 years ago before the PARPs were around. Um, You know, I know, like I said earlier, you know, I'm working on some targets now that, you know, it's probably going to be 10 years, but you know, if I'm around for that, it could be helpful. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the changes, and I will say like, we know the ovarian cancer changes haven't come as quickly as some of the other changes in breast cancer, right. but we have PARP inhibitors. We have a new drug for a resi- uh, platinum resistant ovarian cancer called Mertrituximab that's new. And so I think things are moving, albeit it's more slowly than we would like, but there's definitely been some progress. So you started chemo. Yeah. Uh, and what was your chemo experience like? I'll just back up just a little bit and say um, the first meeting I had with the oncologist um, before I even had the PET scan, I, you know, I'd been training for Chicago. So I, I said to her, like naively, I guess, but, you know, I had plans. We I was running it with my daughter. We had a hotel room. So I said, you know, is there any reason why I can't, you know, run for or run Chicago. And um, I mean, she was great. I'm sure she was thinking like, are you kidding me? Like, this is never going to happen. But she's like, wow. She like actually did the math because she knew when they wanted to start me. She's like, I think that works, you know, because they wanted to do like three cycles mm-hmm. of chemo yeah. and then they went on to surgery, right? She's like, oh, that should work. And so anyway, so then I started the chemo on the 16th. And I think I was lucky. I really... Um, the chemo was always on a Wednesday. It, you know, the session would be fine. I would start to have some bone pain on the Friday. So any sort of side effects I had, you know, sort of tiredness and mostly bone pain um, would be over the weekend. And then, um, you know, I was usually running again by Tuesday because, you know, I had a training plan. I was like, I needed to get out. I needed to do my thing. So I didn't really have nausea. I was very lucky. Um, um, I don't know if... The fact that I was very active beforehand and um, helped, but for the most part, I didn't really have terrible side effects. I mean, there were a, a lot of my long runs didn't happen during that training cycle because, you know, on the weekends, I just wouldn't really feel up to it. Um, but I did continue to train through the whole thing. Um, the, the way the timing worked out was that I did four cycles of chemo first, and then it was the marathon and then they did the surgery and I did two more cycles after. So before you oh. tell us the punchline of whether you ran it or not, 
you know, running during treatment, I mean, Taxol is known for joint pain and known for that discomfort and that achiness. On the days that you were able to run, what did running feel like? Did you feel like I'm out here, I'm doing, you know, I'm empowered, I'm running at my usual pace, or were you slower? Was that frustrating? I was slower, but not, um, not ridiculously slower. And I did feel empowered a little bit. I, I will also say, um, you know, kind of before even the chemo started or when I was thinking I was going to do it with that, um, there was a Facebook group. Um, I'm still in. There was a um, an Under Armour um, Map My Run You Versus the Year Challenge that I, you know, have done for years where you have to run, log a certain number of miles mm-hmm. for the year. And so I reached out and I said, you know, does anybody... Didn't have any experience with sort of training through chemo, and um, that's where actually um, I, Angela Pohl's name came up, and they said, "Oh, we know this, or you know, we've heard of this person that's also training." And so, um, you know, I kind of reached out to her um, and saw that she was able to do it. So that was very helpful to know that there was somebody that you know. And turns out there's a lot of people that do kind of train while they're undergoing, you know, treatment. Yeah. And I think, you know, for those of you listening, Angela is a really an incredible woman and, and she's a breast cancer survivor and has run throughout her treatment. And her and I actually met in Florida, like very fortuitously a year ago. And it was, it was great. And we went for a run together and it was really fun. Um, but I think that, you know, that's the power of community, right. And being able to reach out and Right. When you're navigating something that maybe is a little bit new or maybe the medical community is not so familiar with, right? Having other people who've gone through it and can guide you is really, really important. And I think before social media, you wouldn't have had a way to connect with these people. Exactly. You I would have I mean, you know, what you think when you hear you have to have, you know, chemotherapy of your cancer is that you're gonna be, you know, various I know, you know. People do have terrible side effects, but that you're going to be very sick and you're really not you're going to be to do anything that you wanted to be able to do and to at least have somebody say, oh, yeah, I know somebody that's doing it. It's, you know, it's, it's doable. Yeah. Right? I mean, so that was helpful. I And also I am somebody that likes to have a plan. Right. So having a training schedule and knowing that, you know, I needed to try to get out X number of days. I just think it was helpful. Like it just gave me something else to focus on yeah. too. And it gives you a little bit of control over what is a very uncontrollable situation. Right. Yeah. It's October. Yeah. To Chicago. You're there. Yep. What was it? Walk, tell me. It was, um, so I ran the marathon. Um, it was um, hard. Um, harder. So I'd run some previously okay. and I knew I wasn't, you know, my goal at the beginning of 2021 was to PR this mm-hmm. one um, with my eventual goal, trying to age into a qualifying time for Boston <laughs> in a, you know, maybe a decade or so. Um, but um, it was very, um, it was amazing, actually. You know, I, I ran it with my daughter. I lost her at mile two. I was um, actually running a little faster than she was. So it's kind of by myself, but I tend to be a runner that runs by myself anyway. My husband and a family friend were sort of traipsing all over Chicago trying to see us so that, you know, we had people out there. 
Um, it was disappointing at the end, though, because um, the way, since it's such a big marathon, spectators really weren't allowed past. There was like still 0.2 miles to go. So when I finished, you know, it was it was like really emotional. Um, yeah. But I had nobody to be emotional with except for the person that put the medal around <laughs> my neck. I'm like, I'm going like, to hug you. This I know. So like, I can't believe I did this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah. But I did it. And it was, um, you know, it was the re- the recovery was a little harder than it had been the previous marathons that I'd done. Like, you know, it was it was pretty taxing on my body, actually. Um, I mean, marathons I did it. are very taxing without any chemotherapy. Exactly. Well, yeah. No, there's that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so that was uh it was like October 10th, and then I had my surgery on the 19th. So it kind of worked out. Yeah. Uh, and and so after surgery, you're recovering from surgery, there's more chemo, as we know. Yeah. And what now we're in 2022. And what yeah. came after that? So I finished uh, my last um, chemo was on November 26th. So it was like right after Thanksgiving. And I knew that they were going to keep me on Avastin and that I was going to try Limparza. So there is evidence that um, Limparza... Um, I think it's only Limparza that's approved yes. for mm-hmm. patients without the BRCA mutation. Um, so that was the in, plan. In the, up, in the upfront setting, it gets very nuanced with recurrence right. and resistance, but upfront, yes, Limparza is the only parpenter yeah. approved with Avastin. So I started the Avastin-only infusions, I think, uh, December 15th or so, and then I started with Limparza about a week after. And I will say the side effects of the Limparza in the beginning were, they were hard. Like it was harder than chemo. Um, what did I had you experience? I had horrible joint pain, right? So like getting down the stairs in the morning was really almost comical. Like it was just holding on to the railing and lowering myself down. Um, a lot of um, swelling in my ankles, just a lot of edema, um, you know, so much so that I was wearing um what do they call the socks that impression uh, socks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. You know, had so they were so t- you know, it was hard to get them on. You know, just trying to hold my ankles yeah. together, um, and that was that was hard actually. Um, but I started acupuncture. Um, you know, I also am not the kind of person that's gonna not keep exercising either. So I just kind of kept going, um, and it it did get better. Um, so much so that I, um, I trained for another marathon last year. So that was, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. In terms of, you know, things that you did so exercise, you know, I think is such a big part, even if you can't do what you normally do, even just movement is so big. Yeah. Uh, tell me about acupuncture. I think it's such an untapped resource. Did it help you? I think it did. And, um, I don't think I would have even known about it but I actually um a mom in the town that I live in um I know is an acupuncturist and she like our our kids were friends and when I was first diagnosed she wrote me a note and she told me about um a place called the Virginia Thurston uh healing garden so it's it's for people that have cancer and they have a lot of um wellness types of things And, you know, so I sort of signed up with them and I would get their um, newsletters and, you know, they always 
talked about acupuncture. And so I reached out to this the mom that I knew and I said, you know, can I start getting acupuncture? And so I did. I, I think it's been very helpful. It's helped with the joint pain. Um, you know, it's helped with I, like a tiny bit of neuropathy in my hands. Um, I think it helps with that. Um, and it's just, it's also very relaxing. So I, <laughs> I do enjoy it. Yeah. One of the things that everyone talks about with acupuncture, right? If, you know, sphere of the needles, does it hurt? It does. I mean, it does not hurt. There's like, it's almost like a tiny, tiny sting. Um, but it, it always, it always sort of calms down. You don't feel it. It's, you know, once everything's set up and you're, you know, in the room, she leaves you for a good 30 minutes. I almost always fall asleep. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it sounds very relaxing and I think having that time to yourself and hopefully working on some side effects can be, you know, really powerful. It sounds weird to say that you almost can feel it working, but, you know, you can sort of just feel almost like the energy. It's like everything it feels better when you're finished. I've been really thinking about just trying it for just like running and, and joining yeah. and like I, I, every time I talk to someone, I'm really that much more convinced to go and, and get it. And we, we have also a mom in my town who does it. And yeah, see, I think, I mean, it's, it's all, yeah, it's kind of nice actually. Cause you know, I, I see her once or twice a month and mm-hmm. you know, it's a way to catch up. I mean, our kids are older now. They have gone in different directions, but you know, you can still you know, yeah. chat. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Um, wonderful. And so, you know, talking a little bit about being, being diagnosed with stage four and I know you're, you're still on the Linfarza and Avastin, correct? I am. Yes. And yeah. what's the plan, you know, in terms of stopping or continuing, what have your scans looked like in the last year? So everything is stable actually. So when I finished chemo, so the, the plan is to get scans every six months. So one thing I didn't mention also when I was diagnosed was that my CA125 was actually 25. So there, you know, and that's with stage four. So I had no symptoms. My CA125 wasn't elevated. And so there's a little bit of a worry on my part. And I, I think the oncologist sort of shared that where I don't have any symptoms to fall back on. I, I'm not gonna be thinking, oh, this is how it felt before. I should probably yeah. raise an alarm, right? Um, so the plan is to try to keep me on the Avastin and the Limparza as long as possible. Um, you know, my scans are every six months. Um, and um, everything actually, I don't know if you can call it no evidence of disease. Um, there are two lymph nodes in my chest that kind of always get noted, but they are um, almost normal size and they are smaller than they were from when I first had my first CT scan. Um, and there, there's nothing that seems to be growing. Could that change? You know, there's always, that's always kind of in the back of your mind. You just don't know what's going to happen. Right. So how do you live with that uncertainty? And especially, right, as a biologist who's like, job it is to I mean it's science it's certain right so how do you live in this space of saying things are good right now but I I don't know what the future is going to look like so in the beginning it was a lot harder you know it's almost sort of like an existential crisis like you know I 
was pretty sure, you know, it was hard to think about the future, right? It just seemed like it was going to, it wasn't really going to be one. Um, I did start seeing a therapist that has been um, very helpful to sort of talk through things because I have found there really aren't many people that want to talk about it with you. You know, even like my family, everybody, like what everybody says is, you know, oh, you're going to be fine. You're going to outlive us all. Like, it's all going to be, you know, yeah. you're going to be fine. But, you know, that's maybe, maybe true. I don't know, but it is likely not going to be true. I am trying to um, just kind of live my life um, as fully as possible. Like, you know, like in the beginning, I was like, oh, why would I even want to plan a trip? You know, now I'm, you know, places I want to go. I'm starting to check them up. I do, I still work full time. So, um, you know, there's the whole vacation yeah. aspect of things. I can't go to too many places. But, you know, there's a little bit, I think, of pressure, though, to at least from myself, like, to want to make the most out of my life right right now and to um, be the best version of myself that I can be and all these things that I thought you know I didn't even really think about but when you think you're going to live to 100 which is kind of what my you know it, it was a joke but not really a joke I fully planned to you know die the day after my 100th birthday I was just kind of like you know <laughs> you know um, sleep kind of thing pretty much that's what my grandmother did it seemed to work out yeah. um but uh you know that's probably not I'm probably not going to make it 200 at this point um but yeah I'm just sort of trying it's a fine line right you know you don't want to I don't want to be living in despair and always like thinking about the what ifs but I do have that you know it's in the back of my mind you know. How do you handle that that pressure, right? To be the best version of yourself or to make the most out of every day? Because we know, I mean, days, you know, the mundane things in our days are not always the best or, you know, we don't always have the best day. So how do you reconcile that with that pressure that you feel? And that all may be internal pressure, but. Yeah, I mean, the pressure is definitely internal, but um you know, there are days that are, um, you know, not great for reasons other than the fact that, you know, that I have cancer. Um, the pressure is more, I, I think, when you're thinking I'm almost long term, like I kind of want to, um, you know, spend the rest of the time that I have. have um, it's almost like I'm speeding up what was sort of my long range plan. Like I was going to spend decades being the best version of myself. And now I'm, you know, condensing that a little bit, mm -hmm. um, you know, just really trying to um, think hard about like the kind of person that I really want to be, what kind of uh, legacy do you want to leave? You know, how do you want your family to remember you? You know, things like that. Just um, there's a little, I find that there's a lot, more internal dialogue and thought about um, interactions that you have with people, just really trying to not sweat the small stuff and just to really try to um, focus on sort of like 
what really matters, right? And what about your daughters? So, yeah, so there's a little bit of a concern that they um, will also get ovarian cancer. Um, you know, my mother was diagnosed with the same cancer that I have about six months after I was diagnosed. So prior to that, um, I didn't think cancer ran in my family. I didn't have any reason to think that there was, you know, any risk that I had. Um, and now that my mother has it, um, you know, obviously it's more of a risk for my girls. So they're 25 and 20. And so, you know, we've had some conversations about, um, you know, sort of the medical guidelines sort of for things that they may want to do. Um, so we'll see. And I know you might, we mentioned, we were talking before that you don't have a known genetic mutation and yet you and your mother were diagnosed. And I think it's really important to point out that we kind of always, there's this kind of misconception that even in, if you don't have a genetic mutation, that there is not a family link and, you know, right. that's not necessarily true. Yeah. It, I mean, it's true. And, and I also have, um, her brother has prostate cancer, it turns out. So, you know, there probably is a link. I know that my sister, you know, she's worried sort of weighing her options at this point. She has, you know, she has a, an eight-year-old, so she's very concerned about, you know, not wanting to get cancer. And, you know, another interesting thing that has come out recently is for patients, um, for, for women who are average risk, right? So anyone who has ovaries who is not at high risk to get cancer. And in your case, like, it's interesting because you wouldn't have been considered high right. risk. Um, but they are recommending that if people are having pelvic surgery for something else, like maybe they're getting fibroids removed or whatever, um, that they also consider once they're done having children, getting their fallopian tubes removed and leaving the ovaries until you're, because, you know, ovaries, we, we want the estrogen kind of for heart health and bone health, yeah. but, um, taking out the fallopian tubes, cause there's this thought that really a lot of the ovarian cancer originates in the fallopian tubes and not in the ovaries as we once thought. Yeah. I mean, that is where my tumor was. Mm -hmm. It was on my fallopian tube. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the only, it was, it was tiny. They never saw it on a CT scan, um, but it was on the left fallopian tube. Yeah. And that's the challenge, right? That's why we don't have great early diagnostic tools because right. see these things when they're so yeah. small. Exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, I don't feel like, I don't feel like I missed anything. I don't feel like, you know, a doctor missed anything. I just, you know, it yeah, just happened. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I will say with my mother, honestly, who knows how long she had something going on because when she was finally diagnosed, um, she had carcinomatosis. So it's, you know, it's just, it's everywhere. She definitely had um, tumors that could be, uh, genotyped, right? Um, but she didn't really have any somatic mutations either. So yeah, and just for people listening, um, just to clarify, if, if you are not familiar, there's germline mutation, which germline mutations, which is what we inherit in the blood and our DNA, and then somatic mutations that belong to the, the mutations that belong to the tumor itself. So in ovarian cancer, either you can have had inherited a BRCA mutation yeah. in your DNA, 
or your tumor can harbor a BRCA mutation, but the rest of your normal cells don't have that mutation. Right. It's interesting. You know, she never really, um, you know, complained of any real symptoms either. So it's just, it's kind of interesting to me that you can sort of both have essentially the same thing. Hers was much, you know, more widespread, it seems, but she also didn't really have symptoms, right? So um, it's it's a tough one. It's very interesting. I mean, I've seen people present with all different symptoms and sometimes people come in and, you know, kind of like your mom's presentation and you were surprised that they didn't have any symptoms, right? You would have thought that they would have had more of their cancer, their pelvis and their abdomen's full of cancer. You would have thought, okay, they're going to have nausea or they're going to have early fullness or, you know, pressure and discomfort. And those people don't have anything. And then you have people who have a very, very small amount and really feel it. So it's right. so interesting how there's such a difference in symptom presentation. I mean, it can, it could depend a little bit too, I think on um, just even, you know, she's the kind of, she has um, like a, a lot of degenerative disc disease. So she has like a lot of back pain anyway. So she may have just brushed aside whatever else she was feeling. Um, you know, I, she never ever said that she thought anything was wrong and it was, it was a big surprise actually. So now did she get the same treatment that you did or because she's older? She did. So she's, um, so she's, she had, um, the carboplatin, the taxol and the Avastin, um, you know, she is much older and she also, um, prior to this was showing signs of dementia and with the treatment it's it's gotten progressively worse so we're you know we're kind of at the point where they would like her to um continue with the avastin but she's had some um other health issues that sort of she keeps getting hospitalized for other things now um so they it's kind of been put on hold um so i'm not sure what they're the plan is with that if we can sort of get her to where she can like stop falling things like that priorities priorities, right that's just it like showing signs of dementia we were going to try to manage that and then she got diagnosed with the cancer so that all got put to the side and we focused on the cancer um and now that you know that we're kind of at the maintenance stage for her with that you know we're back trying to worry about you know, yeah. the falling and the other stuff. So, well, and I, I also think that, you know, the other things, especially in someone who's aging, don't stop with a cancer diagnosis and, in fact, can actually be accelerated. You know, yeah. with chemo and, and chemo brain and cognitive dysfunction, that can turn a mild dementia into a much more rapidly progressing one. Yeah. And it, it is hard to know if it was sort of, um, you know, the treatment and the, you know, just sort of the stress of everything that sort of accelerated it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's one of those things where there's so much we don't know. And I, I feel like, you know, there's sometimes a disconnect because here come in doctors saying, we don't know why this is happening, or we don't know why you were diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, and, and it's hard, it's frustrating for us to not have the answer. And it's frustrating for patients to not know why, they're having certain symptoms or why their cancer was diagnosed and things like that. It is what, you know, it is. It is what it is. It is. Yeah. You're going to do, keep doing all the great biology work that we need 
to help us? I mean, it is, it's, I mean, you could say it's always been kind of an exciting time. Um, I mean, I want, when I was in high school was when the first, um, I think it was Scientific American had a, a cover story on um, genetic engineering and how it was going to like cure cancer. And I just I thought that sounded so exciting. So in my high school yearbook, I said I wanted to do genetic engineering and, um, you know, to still be here. And it is still exciting. Like we, cancer still hasn't been cured, but, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of what seem to be potentially exciting treatments like on the horizon and all of the different therapeutics that are targeted that have come out in the last decade or so, you know, I feel fairly hopeful, I have to say, Um, you know, it's, it's possible that, you know, with the, the pace that everything is, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of being developed that, you know, there could very well be, you know, a treatment when I need it. Right. Again, I was thinking about this today because, you know, I have a couple of patients now that we've gotten, we've been able to genotype their tumors and we've been got, you know, gotten a lot of molecular, you know, panels back and was talking to someone and I said, well, we have this option and we have that option and we can do this. And none of them were chemo, you know, we sent me this clinical trial opening for this mutation. And, you know, it was, it was, I've never said just, it is so rare to say to someone with ovarian cancer, oh, we have all these options, you know, and it was just this moment of, wow, like we are coming, you know, we are progressing, you know, my grandmother um, died of ovarian cancer back in 2005. And at the time, I mean, there was only chemo there, there was right. Herp inhibitors were just beginning, you know, maybe in clinical trials, there was, there was nothing, there was some people weren't even getting genetic testing. I mean, there was just a paucity of treatment options. It was this chemo to that chemo. And so it's really wonderful that we can sit here and we can molecularly type these tumors and figure out targets and treatments and I think that that will only continue to develop. Beth, is there anything else that we didn't talk about? I mean, I think ending on an uplifting note, like that there are so many new things coming, I think is always really positive. But anything that we didn't talk about or anything else that you want to share? Statistically, you know, this is not a great cancer to have, especially being stage four. But I do think that, um, you know, having the option of the PARPs and knowing that there's lots of things coming. And I I do feel like the PARPs are working for me, right? I mean, totally willing to, you know, side effects have mitigated to a certain extent, but, you know, I'm willing to run. So I'm much slower, you know, talking about running much, much slower than I was even on chemo, um, you know, and I've just made my peace with it. You know, you're still I'm running, gonna, right? You're still getting. I'm still there. running. I still, yeah, I still do all my things. You have a race coming up. So I do have. Um, so my my plan for the year was to not really do another marathon, just because I have gotten. It, it's not that I need to be fast, but being out on the course for say six hours, it's just a lot. It's like a yeah. long time. A lot. So and it's a lot of training, right? It's a lot of time. It's a lot of training. And, and that that's also tough. And so I was thinking this year, I would just do um, some shorter races. There's a 10 mile series that um, there's a race in Portland, Maine, and then there's one in Newport. And I was going to do that and focus on some halves and some smaller distances. Um, but my daughter did tell me about a marathon that, um, is 
you run from sort of southern Vermont into Massachusetts, and it's supposed to be a net downhill. Oh. And I'm intrigued. I don't know. I might. I'll think about it. <laughs> that sounds fun. I mean, I just feel like you can never get away. Once you start running marathons, it's yeah. really hard yeah. to get away, even though it is like the most like physically a painful thing to do. It, it is. I do like having a goal and a plan. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I don't necessarily need it for motivation. I can, you know, I'm not going to do a long run if I don't have anything I'm training for. Yeah. I'll still get out and run. But, you know, I kind of like lining my week up based on the training schedule. So it, I'm not going to say I'm definitely going to do it, but I, I might do it. And if not, I'm just going to sort of fill, you know, my calendar with some you know, shorter races, but also like that 10 mile, there's a couple of half marathons that I really like to do. Um, so, you know, I'll do that too. It, for me, it's social. Like a lot of my friends do it. A lot of the people I work with do it. Um, we have a, a Ragnar reach the beach team at, at work that we do. And so I'll definitely do that in September. Um, so I just, I'm surrounded by a lot of people that like to run, which is good. Yeah. So like you can't stop because it just exactly. Oh, right. I need um, to do reach the beach again for sure. Yeah. No, I think running, I mean, for me, running more so than any other exercise has been like the most transformative thing. Like, you know, I can't imagine not being able, like, like running brings me, you know, fulfillment in a way that like lifting doesn't, for example. Beth, if anyone wants to connect with you, whether to talk about running during treatment or hearing about ovarian cancer, where can they find you? Um, I am on Instagram and, um, I'm also on Facebook. Um, it's, uh, Beth Griffiths Browning. You can find me there, but I'm not on, um, that's pretty much it. I'm not on Twitter or anything. So yeah, uh, I, Twitter is, you know, I gave up on Twitter. It was, too, it was just too much for me. No, I don't, I, I, I'm on Twitter, but like, I just, I don't love it that much. You know, Instagram is my, my favorite space. I think Twitter for, you know, a, a doctor, uh, it has a know, lot of company. Exactly. But mm-hmm. as a person, yeah, I don't need to be on Twitter. So fair enough. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I, I know that this was really, really helpful and, and hopefully will inspire someone to get out and move even on a day where they feel like they can't. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you all for listening to my conversation with Beth. I truly meant what I said at the end of the episode that there are so many treatments right now for ovarian cancer and there are new trials and new developments and it's so much more than we've had in the past. And that really is, that really feels optimistic, which is a a great feeling to have. You can find Beth on Instagram at Beth G Browning or on Facebook, as she mentioned, and reach out to her, connect with her. She is a great source of information of what it's like to live with ovarian cancer, train through treatment and, and so much more. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on any social media platform, reach out, let me know what you thought about this or other conversations, topics you want to hear about. And if you want to be a guest on the interlude podcast on my Instagram profile, I have a link where you can submit your information. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you soon. 